Last week, when we looked at verses 17 through 24, Paul told the believer that there was a clear distinction between the old life and the new life. And yet Paul was not content to leave a biblical principle at just mere words. So beginning today, in the text we're looking at, verse 25, Paul gives commands that reflect a contrast between the old life and the new life. We're given examples of what it means to live as a new creation, no longer under the influence of our old sinful life. Now, I think it should be understood that these particular actions that Paul deals with here, I think most likely were probably going on in the life of this church at Ephesus and the other churches in which this letter was going to be circulated to. I think these things were going on. Uh, After all, we are sinners saved and put into the family of God and we're, we're sinners. We're going to act like sinners still at times. However, this is not an exhaustive list of how we're to live our lives as new creations. In other words, don't take this and confine it. These are the things I need to work on. They're, these are not the only changes in behavior that should mark the lives of believers. Uh, but as with anything, it's a good place to start. I want to point out to you a few things so that you're watching for these as we go through these verses here. Number one, these practical man, commands are relational. They are relational. Being a new creation should change the way we live in community. It should change the way we live together as God's people. Just as righteous actions bless others, our sinful actions affect other people in the church in a negative way. Number two, there's a negative action mentioned first and then a positive action. Being new creation is not just about putting off the old self, it's about saying yes to the things of God. And thirdly, our practice or um, should match up with what we believe about God. It should match up with our theology. Our practice and what we believe about God are linked together. You cannot separate those. When Paul says put away, he gives the reason why. Verse 25, it's because we are members one of another. That's the theological reason. That's the reason we're to do these things. Christians should not only live differently from lost people, but they also should live differently for different reasons. The truths that we know about the Bible... The truth that we know about God, the truth that we know about sin, the truth that we know about the church, the truth that we know about Jesus' death should affect the way we live. It's not just do's and don'ts, being legalistic, I can do this, I can't do that. What we know about God from the Bible should affect the way we live. These are areas in verses 25 through 32 where our behavior will either destroy the unity of the church, or just as importantly, it will harm the witness of the church. Don't forget that. It can cause disunity, and it can cause harm to the witness of the church. These things can. Looking at your handout there, the main idea we see is the new life replaces sinful habits with righteous habits. Verse 25. These are quite simple. We're just going to take this outline directly from what it says. Number one, speak the truth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So the word therefore, 
I think we've been studying through the Bible enough to know when we see that word therefore, we just don't jump over that and keep going. It tells us you need to look back to the previous verses. And there Paul told us in a general way how we're to be different from our former manner of life. Because God has changed us through the gospel. Remember I talked about that last week. When you come to Christ and you live for Him, it's not just a list of do's and don'ts. God has transformed your life. And because God has changed us through the gospel, we're to live in light of that truth by putting off the old life, Paul says in verse 22, and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, verse 23, and to put on the new life, verse 24. Paul knows that we hear that. Sitting here last Sunday, you heard that, right? Some of you, you're wondering, was I here last Sunday? I think so. Did I hear that? Paul knows that we hear that, and then we leave it out there in the area of generalities, and we don't apply it practically. So Paul's going to help us. So beginning in verse 25, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul gets real specific here. He'll name specific sins from our old life that we're to put off, and godly behaviors that we're to put on in the Christian life. Notice he says there the Christian is to put away what? Falsehood. Falsehood, I think, is uh, rather simple to understand. Falsehood is lying, misrepresenting the facts. It's the absence of truth. Put away falsehood. Stop telling lies. Notice verse 25. Having put away falsehood. Do you notice the... The way the, the wording of that verse is, having put away, believer, you've put that away. It's to be gone. Now that you've become a Christian, put away falsehood, put away lying, and do what? Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Christians, each one of you should tell the truth. In all areas, each one. It says, it doesn't say the spiritually mature. It doesn't say the Sunday school teacher. It doesn't say the pastor. It doesn't say the deacons. It doesn't say that person who's been in the church all of their life. It says, each one of you, young believer, along the scale of living the Christian life, no one gets left out. Each one of you should tell the truth. In all areas, each one, all Christians should be truthful. And they should be truthful, listen, in all situations. They should be truthful with all people. Listen, this is not just about telling lies. This is about telling the truth. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Without dismissing that fact, notice in verse 25 who we're to be truthful toward. Now, I think we should be truthful to all people, right? This is, yes. We should be truthful to all people in all situations. But don't miss something that's going on here in verse 25. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Now, who's our neighbor? Anybody we come in contact with, right? That's what the Bible teaches us. Anyone that we come in contact with. Generally, you're to be truthful with all people. Anybody you come in contact with in your life, your neighbor, and for those of you who may be uh, younger Christians, neighbor doesn't mean the guy across the street. It means the guy you work with, the guy you run into at the store. Anybody you have contact with is your neighbor. Speak the truth with your neighbor. From a biblical perspective, a neighbor is anyone we come in contact with. But here, neighbor is defined 
Notice by the phrase, for we are members one of another. This means fellow Christians. Christians are to speak truth to everyone and to every situation, but we have a special motive to be truthful with other believers. Now, don't misunderstand me. Y'all understand what I'm saying, right? Truthful with everybody. But you really need to be truthful with who? One another. Because we are fellow members of Christ's body, the church. We are members, notice it says, one of another. When Christians are not truthful, they not only harm themselves, but they harm the body of Christ. That's a major theme in the book of Ephesians. We, we are fellow believers joined in close relationship with one another. Verse 16, if you'll remember, even says that we're joined and held together. In order to stay together, in order to function properly, to function as a body, we must speak the truth to one another. We must be honest with one another. Again, this is not just about don't lie, tell the truth. Even though we do that, but it's being honest and telling the truth to one another. The truth we speak is that your sin affects more than just you. If you're a Christian, your sin affects the church. Your sin affects the unity of the church, and it affects the witness of the church. Fellow Christians must speak the truth about sin to one another. Be honest, yes. Be truthful, yes. But be truthful in all areas. But we're to keep in mind something. Look back to verse 15. When we speak the truth, when we're being truthful with one another, aren't you glad that we have instruction from God's Word on how to do that? Notice in verse 15, we speak the truth how? Look with me. How do we speak the truth? Let's everybody say that together. We speak the truth how? In love. About 90% of you are awake right now. I think... We speak the truth in love. How many of you know telling the truth to someone sometimes can be a hard thing to do, right? Ooh. Heart starts beating. Palms start sweating. Telling the truth can be a hard thing to do. The Bible never said it'd be easy, but it says it's the right thing to do. We must be kind and gracious when we speak the truth. We tell people the truth. We don't withhold the truth, but listen, church, we do it in love, right? That's your motive for telling the truth, because you don't want people to be harmed by what they're doing, right? So you speak in love to them. Let me help you make some application here. Speaking the truth in love also loves another believer enough not to turn a blind eye to their sin. Love, listen, love is speaking. What happens when you speak? For most of us, words come out, right? Speaking the truth in love. That does away with being quiet. There's accountability for our lives between one another. Your attitude cannot be that of, it's not my place. This says, be speak the truth and do it in love, right? Don't miss this. It's not simply being truthful that Paul is speaking about here. It is truth about God as it is revealed in the gospel of the Bible. 
It's not just general life truth. We are to speak the truth to people about the Bible, about God. People who profess to know Jesus, we're to speak the truth to them. But how do we do it, church? We do it how? In love. Does everybody have that part? In love, right? We speak the truth. Let's move on to the second one. Be angry and do not sin. Verses 26 and 27. Listen to me carefully. If you're not off here, you could leave here and misrepresent what I'm saying if you talk to someone this week. Be angry and do not sin. Listen, you are given permission to be angry, but there are restrictions on that. You see that? You're given permission. Actually, it's a command. Be angry. And before some of you shut down right here and say, that's all I need to know, listen carefully. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There are two things to notice here. First, it's clear in verse 26, Paul's command is to be what? Angry, but don't sin. Paul is affirming the possibility of Christian anger. However, it should be understood that the anger here is godly, righteous anger. There's a big difference. Anger is righteous when it's directed toward what angers God. Righteous anger is rightly expressed when we're confronted with sin. We should be angry at sin. But we speak the truth in that anger in what? Love. You're going, man, we mix all that together, right? We're to get angry at sin, we're to tell people the truth, but we're to do it in love. Righteous anger is rightly expressed when we are confronted with sin. Good examples would be anger toward child abuse. Right? You should get angry about that. Pornography? We should get angry about that. Racism? You better believe it. God gets angry about that. You don't have a loophole. Homosexual activity? And before you go too far with that, listen to me. It doesn't mean we go to the nightclub and kill them. That's not righteous anger. Abortion? We don't go to the clinic and bomb the people there. That's not righteous anger. We ought to be angry at those things. Adultery? We should be angry at that. Because God is angry at that. And there's a, the list could go on and on. Righteous anger is the kind of anger Jesus expressed in Matthew 21, verse 12. When He goes into the temple, what does He do with those money changers? Man, He runs them out. Jesus was always angered when the holiness of God was damaged. And that's what's going on in the temple. Jesus wasn't mad at people personally. He was mad because they turned the gathering place, the meeting place, for people to come and worship. They turned it into what? A place to make money. They were selling those animals outside and the people would take them in. It was part of the sacrifice. But they were making money off those people selling tainted animals or whatever might have been happening there. And Jesus says, you've turned my uh, father's house into a place of something that was not intended for. And so Jesus is angry. But He's not angry personally. What is He angry at? They're maligning the holiness of God. That's righteous anger. But listen, Jesus was never angry at what was done against Him. Oh. You see the difference? We can get angry at what happens to us in a heartbeat, right? 
But we'll let someone who sins against the holiness of God, we'll let that go. And we won't do anything about that. Jesus was never angry at what was done against Him. That's how you determine righteous anger. Righteous anger is anger at sin that maligns the holiness of God. You don't really have a right to get angry when someone does something against you unless it's sinful actions. John Stott, who um, one of the commentators I use in studying through the book of Ephesians, listen to what he says. He was an, I have a hard time saying this, he was an Anglican. That's the Church of England. It means England. And that's a denomination. In case you're wondering, most, well, some are still evangelical and preach the gospel. Like a lot of denominations, people are beginning to fall theologically. But listen to what he says. He says, there's a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the fact of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant. Angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, His people should hate it too. If evil arouses His anger, it should arouse ours as well. But what are we to be angry at? Things that malign the holiness of God. We're to be angry at sin, but we respond to people. Once again, church, how do we do that? We speak the truth how? In love. You know, it could be part of our reason for our failure to, re- to resist daily temptations is our refusal to hate sin. To be stirred up to righteous anger as it continuously pollutes and perverts all that's good and pure in God's Word. First and foremost, listen to me. Don't leave here with your gun cocked, ready to shoot at someone else. First and foremost, we should be angry at our own sin. And with proper control and care, we should be righteously anger at sin in other people's lives as well. One thing is for sure, we cannot be indifferent towards sin. Our indifference towards sin is deadly. Indifference towards sin is not a godly response. Did you hear what I said? Indifference, turning a blind eye to sin that maligns the holiness of God, you cannot do that. That is not a godly response. And you could sit and talk to me all day long and you'll never convince me from the Bible that that is what we should do. There's a warning here. And it's equally important, verse 26, to make sure that we keep our anger righteous. Paul says what? Be angry, but do not sin. You don't have permission, listen to me, you don't have permission to throw a fit or to seek revenge or dishonor the name of Jesus in public. I remember one time I wasn't there But I've been told the story enough times that I think I got it down. Our son was a small boy in the grocery store sitting in the buggy. And he told Debbie that he wanted something from the shelf. And she said no. And he said, I'll pitch a fit. She said, you go right ahead. So he pitched a fit. You know what happened? He come out of that buggy, not on his own, with help. And she commenced to lay one on him. So that's the way we do things where I come from. And I mean, I wasn't there, but I'm sure for him it was not a good situation. 
We don't have the right to pitch a fit or throw a temper tantrum. Notice next, Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. You can be angry, but don't sin in it. But don't let the sun go down on your anger. Here's what that means. That's anger that festers. It's unchecked. And for a long time, it results in resentment and bitterness and becomes a source of division that poisons the fellowship and can even ruin the church. This is anger that results in a critical spirit in the body of Christ. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That doesn't mean you can move to Alaska where it's daylight for six months and you can be angry for six months either. It doesn't mean you can hope summer hurry up and come so you can be angry till 9 o'clock at night where in the wintertime it's 5.30 and you've got to shut it off. That's not what we're talking about here. And notice the last reminder. Don't give opportunity to the devil. Satan would love an opportunity to use your anger to make you bitter. Did you if you if you're a bitter person, you know who's sitting back and laughing and having a good time? The devil. He wants every opportunity to make you bitter. Sin, sinful anger provides an opportunity for Satan to cause confusion and bring a critical spirit into the church. He'll work to make minor disputes into major battles. He'll strive to turn brief disagreements into these resentments that sit within us and simmer. He'll work to keep the memory of these slights that come against us alive in our hearts, carefully stored away, often referred to and brought to mind and added to with every new thing that happens, right? He wants you to save a file in your Internal hard drive marked with the names of your brothers and sisters to which you can place everything that happens, every offense, until eventually you can barely think of them without a flash of anger toward them. That's what the devil wants to do in your life. And if that's happening, that's exactly what's going on in your life. Let me give you some quick practical application here when it comes to these issues. Keep short accounts. Keep short accounts. Don't wait. Go and make things right. My daddy always told me, even if you're not the one in the wrong, take the initiative and make things right. Don't wait. Go make them right. Be reconciled to one another. Forgive and be forgiving, even if you're not at fault. Secondly, remember the gospel. That is always what we do. Remember the gospel. Not to control your anger is to deny the power of the gospel in your life and to deny the principle of the one body of Christ. Let me illustrate that for you. If you smash your thumb with a hammer, you don't cut off the thumb in anger for getting in the way, do you? Or cut off the hand that held the hammer for being careless. Instead, you do what? You grab that thumb and you hold on to it and you massage that thumb and you talk to that thumb. It's because it's part of your body, right? You remember, church, that you're members of the same body with other believers and you will control your anger. Verse 28. Work and earn so you can share. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let the thief no longer steal. 
Taking what isn't yours is contrary to Christian life. Stealing may have been a part of your life, Paul says, before you become a Christian, but after Jesus, what does he say? That's over with. That's that's gone. Christians should not take should not take what does not belong to them. They should not cheat on their taxes. They should not cheat their employer with poor work. Oh. Instead, the Christian must notice what it says. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his hands. Labor doing honest work with his hands. Let me let some of you in on a secret. God created work. Work didn't come because of the fall. You remember that tomorrow morning when you get up. You start your week. God created work. So we are to work. Work is necessary. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 says, If anyone is not willing to work, he should not eat. That doesn't mean people... Notice what it says. Anyone not willing to work. Which means they can, but they don't. It's not people who are in a situation where they physically or whatever's going on prohibits them from working. It's someone not willing to work. Now let me ask you this question. Why should you work hard to make money? Why should you do that? Well, there's, there's a lot of good things that are worthy and have godly motives. It's to provide for your family, right? That's a good reason. Number two, to meet your responsibilities. To glorify God. So tomorrow morning when you get up, I'm going to work and I'm going to glorify God. Those are all godly motives, but what motive are we given here? Notice the words, so that. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Why should I get up? Why should you get up and go to work tomorrow, work hard and not cut corners and do your work as unto the Lord? Because work is ministry. Work is ministry. Going to work is being on mission for God, regardless of what your job is. Work is ministry. Work so you have something to share with people who are in need. Did you see that? That's a radical concept for us or Americans, right? Work so that you have something to share with anyone in need. That should redirect our thinking about our work away from ourselves, away from our pleasures, away from our comforts, away from our own little world. It should turn us outward when we think about our work toward the world. Earn so you can share some of that with someone in need. How many of you ever thought of that? Most of us don't even know that's in the Bible. Work, not just so you can build your kingdom, but so you can do what? Build God's kingdom by ministering to other people. Simple application. Make work a means of ministry. When you get up tomorrow, if you go into a secular job, whatever you do, you ought to have the mindset, this is ministry. I'm going to work, it's ministry. Let me tell you young people something. You go to college. You you go. You get an education. We live in a time now where more people have opportunity and the resources to go to college and get an education than any other time in life, right? Some of you are sitting on the pew going, yes, absolutely. Let me tell you young people something. Don't get an education so you can get a job and make a lot of money in order to have expensive things. What a waste of your life. 
Can I tell you, I'm 56. You have that attitude, I'm going to tell you something, that gets old. And it'll get old quicker than you'd like it to. Because whatever you want, when you get it, guess what? You've got to have something else. Because that does not take care of things. It's always something. Young people don't get an education just so you can make a lot of money. My, our son, uh, he wanted to be a doctor. He came to me one day and says, I- I'm changing my mind. I don't want to do music anymore. I'm going to be a doctor. It's kind of like, okay. You know what's going on in daddy's mind. I can't even pay for us to stay alive, and you want to be a doctor. So I said, all right, well, whatever. Well, let's, 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 let's do it. And I said, here's how I'm going to pray for you. I said, one, I'm going to pray that you become a doctor, you become a really, really good doctor, and you don't make a lot of money, but you go to some foreign country, and you serve other people, and you help advance the gospel. And I could tell by the look in his eye, it was like, and I said, then I'm going to pray. If that's not God's will, I'm going to pray that you make a bunch of money, but you give it all away so other people can go to the mission field. And he's looking at me like, that ain't even... Maybe you just shouldn't pray for me to be a doctor. <laughs> Verse 28 implies several changes here, from selfishness to service, from taking to giving, from thinking of my needs to thinking of the needs of others, from laziness to hard work, from deception to honesty, and from irresponsibility to responsibility. Our lives as Christians should reflect these changes. 28, excuse me, 29 through 30. Make your mouth a servant of grace. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace... Don't miss this. That it may give grace to those who hear. Don't let corrupt talk come out of your mouth. Some of you have a translation that uses no evil or unwholesome words. That word corrupt means rotten or decayed. That's what that word means. The image in Paul's mind is talk that is rotten, decaying, or something that's spoiled. Paul tells the Christian that rotten language must be taken off like dirty clothes that he talked about back in uh, the old self in verse 22. It needs to be stripped away when a person becomes a Christian. Let me ask you this. What happens when you eat bad, rotten food? How many of you ever ate something that was spoiled and at the time you ate it you didn't know it? What does that do to you? You're thinking, don't make me go back there. I don't want to relive that. It makes you sick, Right? It doesn't nourish your body. That's the idea here. Corrupt, rotten talk does not nourish people's lives. Like rotten food, it makes you sick. Examples of corrupt talk would be abusive language, vulgar references, lying, cruel or unkind words, gossip, slander, name-calling, griping, complaining, name-calling, put-downs, trading insult for insult, Man, the list goes on and on and on. What kind of talk is to come from the Christian? Look at verse 29. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such... What does those first two words say after the comma? But only such as is good for what? Building up. Edifying. Paul says we are to do what with our words? We're to do what with our mouth? We are to what? Build people up. And just to be clear, Paul doesn't mean that we should flatter people. 
Does everybody know what flattery is? It's when you sweet talk somebody and you don't really mean what you're saying. You're just doing that to get what you want from them. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's dishonest. He's not saying help them feel better about themselves. That's not what he means by building people up. Instead, his concern is that we should be thinking about how to help other believers grow in grace. Again, you see how important we are as the people of God, as the church? We are in one another's lives to build one another up. Use words that will help the other person grow in holiness. The Christian life involves the constant building up of others. Look at the end of verse 29. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up. Notice what it says, as fits the occasion. Man, there's a lot there. We should ask ourselves this. How, given this person's circumstances, which means you've got to think about what's going on in their life, how can I help their spiritual good? In this particular situation, it means you've got to think about what's going on in their life as fits the occasion. You've got to think it would be a good idea to pray and ask for God's help. How can I, God... Speak into their life to build them up, to show them grace. Love seeks to build up. So it studies the occasion for signs on how to do that well. Notice the motive in verse 29. So that it may give grace to those who hear. When you speak words of truth that aim at building up, that are carefully chosen and fit the occasion, and what will God do with such words? He'll make them a means of grace in the lives of your brothers and sisters. God has placed you in my life, me in your life, and you in one another's life, that we may speak the truth to one another, building each other up. And as we do so, God supplies grace to their lives. That does away with this long range of Christian thing that I'll just live my life, I don't need the church, I don't need the people of God. That's hogwash. We need one another. Application, practical. Think about encouragement and praise for a change. Parents, don't be those who only criticize or correct your children. Instead, when they do something right, praise them for it. No matter how far between it may be when they do it, praise them for that. Don't always be criticizing your children. Encourage them in areas where they're doing well. And listen, do the same thing with your spouse. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. That would cause me to let my guard down. I become vulnerable. No, you just be being godly. That's all. Encourage and praise that spouse. How about appreciation and gratefulness? Tell others how much you appreciate all they're doing. How about saying the three words that we have a hard time saying? Anybody know what they are? I love you. Do it often. Say it to your spouse. And I know me and you're going, man. Say it to your children. Children, say it to your parents. How about kind words? You should especially be kind when someone has done something dumb or has failed. I do a lot of dumb things at the house. And in 34 years of me, I've done a lot of dumb things. There's been a lot of kindness thrown around in our house. 
gentle words. Gentleness means thinking about how the other person feels and how your words make them feel. How about words of loving correction when needed? Again, this kind of goes back to what we said in the beginning. Never lash out, even if the person's in the wrong. Rather, always pray and think about how to speak in the most effective manner. With the aim of what? Moving that person in grace toward God. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul gives the supreme motivation for why we should not sin. Our sin does what? It grieves what? The Holy Spirit, who has sealed us for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit mourns over these things that Paul's talking about. Paul's been showing us the different ways of loving one another. Now he wants us to see that a failure, listen, a failure to love one another, and all the things we've talked about is, is at the very same time a failure to love God as we ought to. The Holy Spirit grieves. He mourns over our sin. When we sin against one another, it disrupts our fellowship. And it also disrupts fellowship with who? God. Our hateful, spiteful, resentful behavior does not simply damage relationships together as the people of God. It grieves the Spirit of God. Ask yourself this question as a means of application. Ask yourself this question before you speak the next time. Will what I'm about to say or do please the Holy Spirit or will it grieve the Holy Spirit? Man, that'll cause you to stop and think, right? Will this please God or will this grieve God, what I'm about to do or say? Notice the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. If you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, then these words assure us that we are secure, we're bound for heaven. But when we live and act as though we did not belong there, when we rebel against the rule of God, we grieve that Holy Spirit. He doesn't throw us out, thank God, but it grieves Him when we do those things. Verses 31 to 32. We need to learn to walk by the Spirit and yield to the Spirit in our relations with one another and these verses help us to do that. Be kind-hearted, excuse me, be kind, tender-hearted, and forgive. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Paul begins with this resentful attitude of bitterness. Bitterness is when a person refuses to forgive or to be reconciled. He wants to make the other person or persons pay. That's what bitterness is. They are going to pay. Bitterness is on the inside, which is outwardly expressed, Paul says, in wrath. Notice there, that all bitterness and wrath. Wrath means to boil over. But all bitterness and wrath and anger. Anger refers to this seething bitterness that's on the inside, which leads to the next thing, clamor. That's a word we don't use very often. How many of y'all ever heard somebody use that word? Clamor. It's yelling abusively. Yelling abusively. 
bitterness boils over. Anger seething on the inside and it results in clamor. Now let me tell you something. You're going, well, I've never done this. But in the day and time in which you and I live, this can be done in written form. Facebook, email, messages we send. Just because you don't open your mouth and yell, when you're behind that keyboard and you're typing away, you're doing the exact same thing. You know, we'll say things on a keyboard that we would never say to people to their face. You know that? Then he mentions spreading our anger by slander. And I think we know what that means. It means to defame or insult. He ends up with a catch-all term that covers all of these forms of anger, and he calls it malice. That means to hate or be cruel. Paul says, put away from you all of these. Put off the old man, the old self. Put it off. You have no business indulging in these things. Christian, you have no... Listen, you have no right to be bitter. Ever. You are not entitled to feel these things ever. You're not entitled to be rebellious toward God. Put them off. You're not entitled to be that way. Instead, he says, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Now, I'm not... I didn't just fall off the truck yesterday. I wasn't born yesterday. That's hard to do, right? It is hard to do. To be kind and tenderhearted and forgive. It's easy to respond to others the way they respond to us, right? We can do that, no problem. We can do it with the best of them. But it's hard to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgive when something happens to us, right? This is yes. We have no problem. When you do this to me, man, I'm coming back and I'm going to do it this and I'm going to do it ten times worse than what you've done to me. That's easy to do. It's hard to be kind and tenderhearted and forgive. So how do we do that? Paul tells us, look at the motive. Forgive one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Remember the gospel of grace. Remember the cost paid by Jesus who was Himself made the object of anger, malice, and hate who bore your sin in His body on the tree. Think of Jesus on the cross. What was it Jesus said about those who were doing that to Him? Father, what? Forgive them for they what? They don't know what they are doing. Here's some application. Remember how by the suffering of Jesus, God has forgiven you. And then see if your attitude of entitlement to hold on to your business, your bitterness can last for long. Stand under the shadow of the cross. Look again at what has been done for you in Christ. And then ask if there is any place, if there is any room anywhere in your life for you to rebel against God who loved you the way He did and gave His Son to die for you. You are not entitled. None of us are entitled to those things that Paul's talking about here. Christian, to be honest with you, and I stand here before you and I put myself in this category, we're unworthy of forgiveness. And yet, you have been forgiven by grace. Here's the great motive for putting off and putting on. It is the self-sacrificing love of the Lord Jesus Christ who held nothing back 
in order that you might be forgiven and become a child of God. He held nothing. What if Jesus had gotten mad at what was being done to him and said, I'm out of here, forget y'all. You wouldn't be sitting here on the pew listening to me spout off. There would be no gospel. There would be no salvation. And we'd all die in our sin and go to hell. Rightly so. One last thing. Your mind is to be controlled by God's forgiveness. Put that in your mind. God's grace, God's gospel, God's forgiveness, and that will control your mind. Let's pray.